شادی برای دختری که آرزو داشت پسر بود برای زن زندگی آزادی listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Residents of Molokai have dealt with some of the highest prices for things like gas and electricity because of outside pressure. But our first story today is about how they've been able to have some control over the high price of eggs. That's because of an egg producing program that's been in place for the past four years. Earlier this morning, we talked to Jamie Ronzello, Food Sovereignty Program Director for the nonprofit Sustainable Molokai. She was joined by Cameron Hero, who took up egg production on the island to supplement his income as a manager for a salt farm on the island. But we start with Jamie first. Back in 2019-2020, Molokai was going through that real severe drought, and that led to a lot of starvation of the deer on the island and a bunch of cattle loss, which was two one of our primary sources of protein on the island. And so our organization, Sustainable Molokai, was kind of looking at community needs, what was maybe this idea of looking at a more sustainable source of protein for the island during this time, and also really wanting to look at reducing the amount of imports and creating a more secure and, I guess, sovereign food system really for the island. So our organization received funding in 2020 from the Administration of Native Americans to host a series of educational workshops, primarily to teach homesteaders how to raise chickens for eggs. So we worked with Maxi Asagi Hatchery, and this was the program that we created where we walked these ohanas through all the various processes. So from raising the chicks, feed and nutrition, flock health and wellness, to processing eggs and marketing. So the families also receive startup supplies and business startup assistance. So now, coming forward into the future, we're four years later, we've had 35 families complete the program, and we've had 10 more that just started this past cohort for the 2024. That's just a remarkable story. I mean, no one knew, you know, at the time you started this, right, that we would have the situation with the avian flu and the price of eggs just skyrocketing. So it's really remarkable that Molokai has been able to really help itself become more food secure. Yeah, it's kind of incredible, you know, and since the avian flu is still on the rise. We were just reading that article, right, that being imported eggs in the store, you know, now we're seeing them at $9 a dozen, and that might be even the sale price. And so we're at the point where we're all of our local eggs, and we just keep seeing the demand go up, and we can't even keep up anymore. And so our eggs are sold through a food hub, distributed through food pantries, and can be found in three of our local groceries. But usually they're sold out. They sell out that fast. The point of the program was not only just for subsistence, but also to increase the commercial availability of the eggs. And so we launched this eggs to market program where we purchase the eggs back from our local egg farmers. And so this is where we kind of created this idea of a egg collective. And we really kind of take care of all of the permitting through the Department of Health. And we're really become one of the first in recent history in the county and maybe in the state to go through the process and regulations to buy eggs from multiple farmers wash and sanitize and package and market those eggs. Well, I applaud your efforts. And Cameron Hero, jump in here. (laughs) Basically, I took the class, applied for the class. Actually, a little background, my wife and I had maybe six laying hands years ago. And, you know, we did the best we can. We had it from a friend and we just fed it and, you know, we collected the eggs and we thought it was a neat thing. Our lives got a little bit busier and so we stopped doing that. But when I saw this come up again, you know, because we live on the homestead area you know, we have about 35 acres, I've always wanted to diversify the land area. You know, there's no way I'm utilizing all of that. but. I wanted to continue to do things besides the salt farm. When I applied and I got it and went through the class, the difference between starting when I had six and when I went through the class was just the comprehensive, I guess, educational component of it. I mean, it's right through from, you know, like Jamie said, from when it's a chick and what do you feed them and how much do you feed it and when do you start switching chicken feed? And the support system has been great all the way to the current. You know, Asagi Hatchery's Maxi was mentioned and She's been very helpful along the process because currently the program, I think, uh, Jamie, was it 25 chicks you get started with? That's correct. Or is it 24? Yeah. 25. So, you know, because I'm a business person going in, I wanted to be able to have eggs for us, our family and friends, and, and become sustainable. But at the same time, I wanted to evaluate how this would do as a business. So although the program started off with 25 for, you know, each cohort member, I decided to go 50 and see what it would entail. 
Well, you know, going through that process, you know, I said, hey, I, I kind of enjoy doing this. And so currently, we went for another 60. So I have another 60 hens where we built another coop. And thinking of doing even more. And I wasn't really aware of this shortage of eggs when I had this in mind. It was just more of, you know, what could I do to diversify the land area? How could I actually make this a business? And how could I actually have enough for the family and neighbors and so forth? and still be able to sell through, you know, sustainable molokai. So that's where I'm at as far as this class. I'm excited to see what's going to happen in the future. And Jamie, talk about the class that you had this weekend. You had, what, about 10 people who were interested in doing this? We did. We actually, we had, it was over 30 applicants, and we only had 10 spots this year available. So we had 10 ohana that had joined us this weekend, but it was really wonderful because they brought their kiki with them, they brought their partners, and so... All in all, there was probably about 35 to 40 individuals that were in the class. We really try to promote it as a family program so that that's where we see the most success when family members are involved. You have the basics that the participants are equipped with, but, you know, like Cameron, if you think you can handle more and want to buy more chicks, you have that option. Yeah, you know, I think going in with the basics with the lumber and the water and the feeder and the chicken feed, everybody goes in, you know, at a different level as far as what they see. You know, Jamie mentioned for their family and so forth. And so it gives you a great start. And, you know, for me, YouTube University, I go on there and see how other people are doing it. And and so, you know, with the basics, with the lumber and so forth, you build it the way you want. You know, they give you basic plans. And I just did it a little bit different with what was given. But... Everybody has a different perspective, but it gives you the great, the good basics to start with. I think that's a good foundation is what I mean. And you've been able to juggle both with your, your salt farm work and raising <laughs> chickens on the side? Yeah. Actually, there's, yeah, there's actually more to, to, to that. Um, I've been able to juggle not only being the operations and manager, manager for the sea salt company, but my brothers and I run a restaurant uh, in the <laughs> local hotel over here, Hotel Molokai, so... I'm doing that besides other things and to answer your question yes I mean I even I'm able to sit down with the chickens in their coop (laughs) sit down with them in their free range and I found along the way that I enjoy doing this and that was kind of surprising I have plans of expanding it a little bit more but Jamie so this is really an opportunity it can be something to supplement a family's income but also to make sure that you've got fresh eggs when you want them yeah, and I, if you don't mind, I'd love to share just a, a little bit of number. That, it's a little bit of an old number, but I always find this really interesting. Um, so back in 2019, we had a staff member collect some data from two of our largest grocers on the island, and it was estimated at the time that Molokai imported close to 9,000 dozen eggs every month. So that's over 100,000 dozen every year. So, you know, looking at food you know, security, food sovereignty for the island, this is a real opportunity to kind of knit, you know, niche away a little bit at that. And so together, like all together, all of our cohorts so far have produced, let's see, I think it's about over 600,000 eggs for the island, which is roughly, if I can do my math correctly, 50,000 dozen eggs. So, you know, it's just a start. We're getting there. But, you know, with folks like Cameron and some other um, cohort members who are looking at expanding, those numbers are going to quickly increase too, which is really, really exciting. Well, Molokai is leading the way. I mean, you can do it. You know, hopefully other interested poultry producers, you know, can somehow get in with this synergy and and this program. I mean, you, you get what some funding from the USDA, correct? We have, we've had some funding from USDA as well. That is correct. And so uh, are you aware of any other island that's doing this? Yeah, that's a great question. So last year, Malama Kauai actually started their very own PEAT program uh, modeled after ours, but of course um, a little bit different based on their producers and their needs of the island. So currently both Kauai and Molokai have a PEAT program. I love it, PEAT. Poultry Egg Education Project. Gosh, I don't know. Anything else that you want to mention, Cameron, just from someone who's been through the program and, you know, has been successful? And I mean, it just sounds like that training was just invaluable. Well, I think it was invaluable, you know, when you're starting with no knowledge, literally, and you just get inundated with a lot of education. 
is very valuable along the way because you're able to use it along the journey. I think for me, what's exciting is having other people do it. You know, starting off small with a lot of these cohorts, almost like small little businesses to try to tackle a bigger problem. And just to find that um, people are excited about it and that we're able <laughs> to supply not only our family, our friends, uh, but supply a little, a little dent, you know, in, in the eggs coming in. And um, always you want to make sure there's a demand when you have some kind of item or product available. So the demand is there. I mean, in fact, we're unable to fulfill the demands that we have. And I end up going to other cohort members to see if they have eggs, you know, for the demand. So, yeah, it's, it's a great program. Jamie, I don't know, any uh, closing thoughts about the success that you've been able to see on Molokai? You know, I think the one thing I would add is from seeing this program and seeing how um, the community has been really you know, excited for this program and has, has continued to have so many applicants every year, we're looking at hopefully, you know, continuing the program in future years, but also looking to expand into doing something like broilers. Uh, mm-hmm. We're really starting to see a need and desire on island for uh, you know that protein source of chicken meat and so that'll probably be a similar program we're hoping to launch it later this year and we'll be working with julius ludovico on oahu to be the lead educator so hopefully not only will be eggs but soon there'll be chicken meat local chicken meat um, circulating in our economy as well is there a plan to expand it i mean if you had you know more interest and you had slots available this year yeah, if we if we absolutely, you know, the one thing that we're limited by is funding. So because we're a nonprofit, most of our funding to run our farmer training programs are through grant funding. And so based on that funding, we only have so many available spots. I think that if we had un- not unlimited, but more funding in general, we would definitely see that there's more community members and we could see this expanding a lot larger. Well, if there's a will, there's a way, and kudos to mm-hmm. you uh, both for um, what you do for your community. But thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. That was uh, Jamie Ronzello, Food Sovereignty Manager for the nonprofit group Sustainable Molokai, and egg farmer Cameron Hero about how Molokai has been able to boost its local egg production to become more food secure. You know, this month, three eateries with Hawaii ties hit the top 10 of Yelp's top 100 places to eat in the U.S. One of them is Adela's Country Eatery and was featured on an earlier segment of the conversation because it embraced becoming more sustainable and began using ingredients like breadfruit and taro and moringai in its noodles. We caught up with Elizabeth Chan, head of business development for this fledgling small business. The customers are giving it the thumbs up. We've been absolutely thrilled. What we understood from Yelp is that it's partially customer nominations. So to have our custo- such an excellent and supportive base of customers, we've been so blessed to have that. So for our listeners who are not familiar with you, how long have you been around? Let's see. We've been open for almost exactly four years now. We opened in March 2018, so that'll be four years in a month. We were last there visiting the shop. We heard all this good buzz about the noodles because you Mm -hmm. folks were using local products to supplement flour and noodles and creating new products for customers to experience. Yes, we really focus on incorporating local produce into our noodle products. The other thing that we're also working on now is moving into dry noodles So we take the same noodles that we cook in the restaurant and dehydrate them in the restaurant so they have even longer shelf life. So we are now selling those in the restaurant for now. And we've been very fortunate so our customers can take the noodles with them, especially for tourists or for some of our neighborhood customers who are sending them for gifts for Christmas. Uh, We've shipped to some pretty far off places actually. We just sent out an order to Taiwan about a couple weeks ago, actually. 
there's a lot of emphasis now on sustainability and, you know, really helping agriculture grow. Somebody mm-hmm. had said the other day, you know, we, we need to grow what we eat and eat what we grow. And you folks are helping to take that you know, to another level. Yeah, for us, I think that sustainability is not just about growing what we eat, but also making sure that what we're making with that food is something that's accessible and something that we want to eat every day. So it's one thing to have breadfruit, and we can do uh, ulu chips with that or just steam it as a staple or substitute for rice or potatoes, but when you can transform it a little bit and incorporate it into noodles, then the ulu becomes something else that's more accessible to more people because noodles are such a staple for us. We all see spaghetti or fettuccine as a standard pasta and to incorporate local produce that's grown probably in this backyard, maybe about five minutes from our restaurant. I think that's sustainability and accessibility combined. Well, you know, you're a small shop, but I just, you know, look to see at the possibilities, you know, with the noodle operation. I mean, how are you folks imagining scaling up? I think that if we scale up, we don't want to lose that artisan nature where we're connected. We're really connected to our local farmers. So there's a finite amount of produce that we can access in our island that we have access to. We can stretch it a little bit through the way that we make our noodles. Through scaling up, I think it would be by expanding the dry noodles or the pantry uh, facets of our operation. The opportunity is there to be able to produce a product, you know, like you said, for families here, to send to relatives uh, who are abroad, just to Mm -hmm. give them a little bit of home. I mean, it's a nice connect. Absolutely. And it's always good to have that care package. I think when I was in college, I always look forward to getting care packages from home. So for us to be able to be part of that sort of family connection, it means a lot to our staff and hopefully to our customers as well. And, you know, your plate lunches are obviously uh, something to rave about, you know, with all the um, Yelp reviews. You know, last time we were there, I think your, your uh, marketing guy, Richard, was saying that a lot of those recipes are community recipes, right? They're from, uh, was it the Hong Chi cookbook? I'm trying to remember now. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, we start, when we started coming up with the recipes for our baked goods, we started out with just our neighborhood community recipes, literally from the collection of Hong Chi cookbooks. Things, classics that we all grew up with, like Jello cheesecake. I'm sure everybody has a very fond memory of Rainbow Jello, Jello cheesecake, sweet potato hapia pie, and I know everybody's family probably has a recipe too. But that's part of what we all ate growing up. I have very fond memories of Jello cheesecake as a kid. Yeah, and I think that's the beauty of it, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, people want food that is, you know, delicious. And if you can warm their hearts as well as as their stomachs, it says a lot. It really does. And part of cooking for us and being in the food industry is just being part of the family. And that sort of soul food sort of sentiment, it doesn't have to be a particular type of cuisine. It's just what we like to eat and what we want to share with our customers as sort of family cooking, home cooking. It doesn't have to be fancy. It just has to be something that all of us love and want to eat and actually enjoy cooking for our customers, too. If I recall right, I think Adela and a a number of people, you know, uh, from the company went to Japan to understand the process of making noodles and and you bought special equipment, special machines to bring back uh, to be able to do that. So you're going to pick up a few few extra machines when you start to ramp up? You know, we're considering it. I was actually really lucky to be able to go on one of the early noodle making trips. We're learning how to make noodles and that was definitely an adventure. (laughs) So we brought back our first uh, noodle machine on one of those trips and then we've since acquired a second one that's a little bit larger so that gives us more capacity and then we've acquired some dehydrators as well we use the dehydrators to um, dry our own moringa the malangai and our own taro leaves for cooking as well so what's on tap for 2023 for adela's country eatery that is a really tough question from the product development side 
We would like to expand our noodle line. We've been experimenting with some other noodle products. I've been tinkering with a coffee pasta with some of our kitchen crew. Um, we've been looking into Kona coffee pasta. I'm not sure if we'll keep pursuing that one long term, but long term for 2023, we will definitely be expanding our dry noodles. So the pantry longer shelf life items that our customers can take home and experiment with as well. And so if there's any advice you want to give a, another mom and pop operation, you know, what would that be? Cook with your heart. Everybody can cook, but what keeps us in the business and keeps our customers coming back is just pure love for what we do, for the food that we're making and for our customers. And, you know, I think Hawaii is pretty proud because I think there are three companies with Hawaii ties that made that top 10 list, which is just awesome. Yeah, it's really awesome. And for it's so good to see Hawaii on the culinary map. I know the James Beard Awards are coming out soon, too. And we're just excited to see that much recognition being given to Hawaii businesses, Hawaii restaurants, and more importantly for us, Hawaii produce and farming. I've always thought that Hawaii has the best produce in the world, and for this Yelp recognition to be given to us, I think, demonstrates the quality of what we have here. That was Elizabeth Chan, head of business development for Adela's Country Eatery in Kaneohe. It was ranked number five in Yelp's top 100 places to eat in the U.S. Two other restaurants with Hawaii ties made the top 10, Ka'oloa Super J's Authentic Hawaiian Food on the Big Island, and Broken Mouth in Los Angeles, whose owner hails from Kaimuki. Support for HPR comes from Hakawone, committed to building a neighborhood in Kaka'ako Makai where all are welcome, offering keiki and kupuna care, and including a cultural center, farmers markets, and housing options. Hakawone.com. Today on The Daily, Edward Wong on the high stakes showdown between the U.S. and China over the weekend when a spy balloon was spotted over Montana. And what it says about the relationship between the world's two superpowers, that a balloon caused such a crisis. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from Waikoloa Beach Resort on the island of Hawaii, offering Kama'aina hospitality with a range of options for dining, shopping, and activities. More about rediscovering the Kohala Coast at waikoloabeachresort.com. Public comment on a controversial affordable senior housing project in Manoa has just closed. Community pushback has been brewing about the project's scope and plans. HPR reporter Casey Harlow has been looking into this and joins us to talk about those concerns. Good morning. Good morning. So we are talking about Manoa Banyan Court. Uh, it is a proposed 288-unit affordable rental housing project for uh, older residents. Uh, the Lenny Chung Association, which owns roughly 27 acres of land in the heart of the valley, maintains like a nearly 200-year-old Chinese cemetery. That they are the ones who are proposing this project, and. The, uh, residents have serious concerns about this project. It's not just a simple case. It's not even a case for a lot of people of not in my backyard. Uh, Brenda Lamb is a retired landscape architect who lives in a home her parents purchased in the 1950s. She created a scale model because that's her trade, right? She was kind of curious about where is this layout going to be and how does this fit with uh, what is running right through the proposed site, which is a ditch. Uh, and it's about 40 feet wide in certain areas, up to maybe 20 feet deep in also some other areas. And this is all forested area. So trees are kind of maintaining the shape of this ditch as well. So she was kind of curious about what these plans are like and what this looks like on this proposed site. And this is her concerns. I was very concerned 
that their pretty pictures of their renderings are not truly informing the public of what this project is going to look like. So I went to the documents that they had in their DEA. I printed out my own topographic maps from the Arborist Report that had trees, it had the locations of the buildings, locations of the parking lots. Difficult to read plans, but I do that profession, so I was able to further analyze what they're doing. So I built not a mock-up, I built a scale model. The buildings are to scale, uh, 30 feet tall. The previous DEA, they were 235 feet long. Their newest, their revised plan, the buildings are now 198 feet long, so approximately 200 feet long, which is still a huge building. And because they built it in a courtyard design, the footprint of the building becomes even bigger. She was talking about the DEA. That was the draft environmental assessment. Yes. And I was just driving through Manoa yesterday, and I saw a sign saying, you know, they're demanding an environmental impact study, which is more complex and more involved. Right, exactly. And would take into account the larger impacts of the surrounding community as well, and also take uh, interview residents about, uh, you know, the scope of this project, maybe address more of their concerns as well. And Brenda Lamb, uh, she has, with that uh, outline, that scale model of hers, it shows that some of the buildings are, you know, less than 10 feet away from the edge of a ditch where the Arborist Report, which is included in the environmental assess draft environmental assessment, said that maybe uh, to put the footprint of these buildings or the parking lot maybe 10 feet back. And this is uh, with regard to maybe like also having uh, some of the trees stay in there as well. There's a lot of concerns about if you remove the trees that the ditch will lose all of its structure. Seth Kamimoto, who lives near the project site, and he's a software engineer by trade, he echoes Lamb's concerns, but he's very, very concerned about the impacts of removing the trees that maintain the ditch's structure and the potential future of rain bomb events, which the valley has seen in 2014 and 2021. If you may recall those images of Manoa sh Stream like becoming like a full-blown river. And so this is his kind of concerns. He says that the DEA doesn't really take into account these heavy rains. The woodland ditch, it's, it's only stabilized by these trees. So when they clear it, I mean, even the waterway itself becomes somewhat compromised, right? Unstable, more right. unstable. Sure. So yeah, I mean, Manoa, it, 100 inches of rain a year, and you know, even our annual rain event, if you had just bare ground, <laughs> bare soil, you know, eight acres of this just dirt, I mean, that it's going to be a lot of land to manage, even our annual rains, right? And they're talking about a multi-year, potentially a construction, construction phase, you know, four phases over four years. We could, this could be five years. And obviously that with having uh, no trees, clear ground, and there's going to be that rain that obviously uh, will go into possibly other uh, areas in the neighborhood as well. Uh, one claim that the project developer argues is that Manoa is an affluent neighborhood and it is basically rich people not wanting uh, to live next to, say, quote unquote, poor people. But uh, Lam and Kamimoto say that's not the case for a majority of these community residents. The houses that people live in are valued at a million dollars or more, but that's not when they were built. I would they say, say Manoa is rich because people live in houses that are valued that much money, but I'd say 90% of the residents have no intention of ever selling their houses because they live in them. Yeah, nor and they plan on passing them on to their within their families because that's what happens in Manoa. And so basically, it's people, families are land rich, cash poor. The property, the land that their houses are on, are worth a lot of money and locations say say it says last year uh, the average uh, home was 1.6 million dollars in Manoa but there's not that many homes being sold in Manoa so it's basically the demand is much higher than the supply yeah hot button issue one exactly. to watch for sure thanks so much Casey thank you we've been talking to HBR reporter Casey Harlow you can read more of his stories at hawaiipublicradio.org
Beats Reality Check today has an overarching story about housing, which includes that controversial Manoa project. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us. Good morning, Stuart. Uh, good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so uh, uh, tell us how this is being um, worked out at the state capitol with all these proposed bills. Well, at the state capitol, so there is one bill uh, that it has been introduced, and it, it seems to have been introduced directly to um, address what's happening in Manoa, but it would have broader impacts. And uh, the general law is it's uh, HRS 201H38 is the section of, of the Hawaii Revised Statutes. And it basically says, look, if you're developing affordable housing, um, with the HHFDC, which is the Hawaii uh, Housing Finance and Development Corporation, then you can forego any state and local uh, land use laws, essentially, um, and build your project. So it's a huge exemption for development of affordable housing, and it is something that allows or enables these projects to be built um, in places where the land use laws, thinking of something like zoning laws, normally wouldn't allow it. So in the case of Manoa, you have a project. It's on P2 land. It's called Preservation 2. It could be used for things like uh, recreational facilities and, and a number of other things. Just because it's preservation doesn't mean it can be, can't be used for anything. But it can be used in certain circumstances for certain development, um, but just not affordable housing for seniors, which they're talking about doing there. So this law that's proposed, or a bill, would say if you're going to do it on preservation land, you have to conduct an environmental impact statement. It sort of uh, deals with the EIS law, the environmental review law, and says we don't just do an environmental assessment and if it calls for it, an EIS, we're going to go straight to the EIS. So it's a way to, um, it seems like it's a way to kill this project in Manoa uh, by requiring an EIS. And your story today also mentions another project in Mo'ili'ili, which someone sent me a petition last night. Uh, uh, they're concerned about the density in that area. Right. So this is a really big project. It's a thousand uh, unit condo complex, um, including a tower that's uh, 40-something stories tall. Um, it is really going to be huge, and it will deplace, it, it I'm sorry, it'll replace or displace um, uh, something like 120 uh, units, uh, apartments, and instead put in, like, like I said, a thousand uh, condos, but in, that would include um, something like 600 affordable condominiums. The question is, who is it affordable for? Right. And the, those two, three-story walk-ups in Mo'ili'ili, I mean, that's, you know, really low-budget um, rents there. And, and uh, the high-rise, who knows who's going to be, you know, be able to afford to get in there. Yeah, well, we spoke to HHFDC, and they said it's for working professionals. You know, people like doc. Uh, I'm sorry, not doctors, nurses, accountants, um, firefighters, people like that. You know, who want to buy a place. They're not at the upper end of the income level, but they're also not necessarily the working poor who might be living there now. Right. So, uh, two projects. Uh, you know, obviously we need affordable housing, but I'd be curious to see how this plays out uh, at the at the session this year. But thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from An Evening with David Sedaris. The humorist, comedian, and author is coming to the UH Hilo Performing Arts Center on Hawaii Island this Saturday. Tickets at davidsedarishawaii.com. It's that time of year again. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. President Joe Biden will deliver the State of the Union Address Tuesday, but this time he'll do it before a new speaker and a deeply divided Congress. Biden is expected to discuss hopeful signs in the economy, support for Ukraine, and the recent string of gun violence. Stay with us for live coverage and analysis from NPR News. Beginning Tuesday afternoon at 4 here on HPR One.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing a variety of art experiences for the community. Learn more about art classes, workshops, and drop-in art making for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to share exciting discoveries viewed through a telescope atop Mauna Kea. Jupiter moons are the focus of your Monday stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet, also things that we can try and spot in our dark skies. We're thrilled to have the return of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What is in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers, Mars can still be found in the southern skies after sunset. The moon this week will begin to wane, and so stargazing conditions should improve towards week's end. Man, on that note of moon, you've got something exciting, but it's not our moon, it turns out more moons for one of our neighbors. Yeah. This year has already been full of scientific discoveries from the far reaches of the universe with all the talk of distant galaxies, black holes, and kilonovae. And it's easy to miss discoveries that are taking place in our own backyard. A team of astronomers from NSF's Noalab and the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope at Mauna Kea have discovered a dozen new moons in orbit around the gas giant Jupiter. This brings the current count of Jupiter's moons to an astonishing 92. That's super cool. And I know you're keeping very close eye on the number of moons of each of the planets in our solar system. Now, how would that compare? Well, Saturn at its current count has 83 confirmed Ooh. moons, so Jupiter has quite the lead there. <laughs> and those are the two primary, the ones with tons of moons, yeah? Yeah, they are the two planets with the most moons so far. <laughs> and thinking about the difference between all of the moons uh, and thinking about these new ones on Jupiter and all of them, got to be kind of a difference. Can you explain sort of how that would work for folks? Yeah, well, the large Galilean moons, as they are called, of Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto are more akin to the rocky terrestrial planets than these newly discovered moons, which are more like asteroids. And could they be captured asteroids? Indeed, they could be. Their retrograde orbit would suggest that Jupiter's gravitational field captured these objects as they passed close to the giant planet. And are any of its moons gas kind of moons? No, they are all solid, mostly composed of rock, ice, or metal or some mixture thereof. And I'm going to hope that, uh, and maybe I'm wrong, but Jupiter's sort of like, uh, it's a good thing, it's kind of like a Venus flytrap grabbing up those things so that they don't <laughs> come our way. Yeah, Jupiter has a plethora of captured objects that, if left alone, would have made their way into the inner solar system and potentially have posed a threat to the inner planets. Jupiter has been playing bouncer for the solar system for several billions of years. Well, we'll have to buy it a drink when we go there one of these days. <laughs> it's Christopher Phillips and... And a fun report. Thank you. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. Betsy Stockton was born into slavery in New Jersey in 1798. 25 years later, she stepped foot on the shores of Oahu in 1823, where she stayed for two years. She also spent time in Lahaina and was the first missionary to teach Hawaiian children, not the ali'i, but the commoners. She also trained Hawaiian teachers who took over for her after she returned to the U.S. in 1825 to start a school and a church in Princeton, New Jersey. Gregory Nobles is the author of the book, The Education of Betsy Stockton, An Odyssey of Slavery and Freedom. The conversation Stephanie Hahn spoke with Nobles about Hawaii's influence on the life of Betsy Stockton. Well, I talk about her life in, as an odyssey, and I have to be very clear about that because odyssey is one of those throwaway terms we use quite often these days to talk about just a long trip, a long voyage. Somebody takes an odyssey and goes from here to there. But I think of it in terms of the way that Homer did in writing about Odysseus, and that is it's a long voyage, a long trip, but with threats and dangers and obstacles. 
Betsy Stockton was born in Princeton, New Jersey in 1798. She spent her childhood uh, as an enslaved child in Philadelphia. She came back to Princeton under the household of Ashville Green, who was the president of Princeton University. She gets her freedom, and then she goes off to Hawaii, uh, leaves in November of, seven, of 1822, and arrives in Hawaii in the spring, April, May of 1823, stays there for two years, then goes back to the United States, goes back to Philadelphia, then to Princeton, where she spends the second half of her life. She literally goes around the world, but it's not a very easy trip in any part of it. And I think that her time in Hawaii in the 1820s was something that was a very formative period in her life when she really had the opportunity to develop a calling to follow her calling and develop a craft as a teacher but also to get out of the united states which even in the north in a nice college town like princeton was seething with racism it was an opportunity for her to get away to follow a calling to take on a mission but also in a sense to find a kind of escape and her time in Hawaii stayed with her throughout her life. It was very important to her. It was the way that she was known quite often. Once she got back, people would refer to her as Betsy Stockton, late missionary to the Sandwich Islands. And that became kind of a, a tagline for her, not of her own making, but that's the way people saw her and identified her. And so I think that that time in Hawaii, even, even though it was fairly brief for two, two and a half years, really was a watershed moment for her in her own life, in her own development. It was, of course, very, very exceptional for a single black woman to go to Hawaii as a missionary and then to come back. That was something that really did identify her to a lot of people in the United States. And what do you think her most significant contributions were in Hawaii? Well, teaching, clearly. Uh, she had set out to become a teacher. This was a, a calling that she had developed before she left. She wanted to teach black children. And I think teaching is something that we too often take for granted, especially as we look back in the early 19th century. Not everybody was at all in favor of teaching black people or having black teachers. It was in some ways an act of resistance, if not radicalism. And so Betsy Stockton, by deciding to become a teacher, was not just following you know, a good pro profession. I think she was taking on a mission, first for her life in the United States, in Princeton, but realizing that was not going to be possible at the time, when she was in her early 20s, she went to Hawaii, became a teacher, a teacher of ordinary people, not just the elites. In that period, she was beginning to see herself and train herself and develop herself as a teacher for people in the lower rungs of society. She was the one who obviously decided to dedicate a lot of her efforts to the local Hawaiian children. And I didn't know if you also wanted to comment about how she might have initially engaged this population or how this might have been seen by the missionaries. It's unclear whether Betsy Stockton was assigned this task of teaching the children of ordinary people or whether she took it on. I, as I said, it was part of her own sense of mission, something she wanted to do. There's no indication whether or not she said, I want to do this, or whether they said, Betsy, you should go do this, because after all, you're a young black woman. That should be your particular task here. But nonetheless, uh, she did it. She did it, I think, quite well. Uh, everybody who saw Betsy Stockton teach or saw the results of her teaching, whether in Hawaii or Philadelphia or in Princeton, was struck by what a good teacher she was. She was teaching, of course, in very difficult circumstances. Uh, the physical circumstances, not having a, a proper school in Hawaii, but also teaching large numbers of children. She would quite often have 70 or 80, even 100. And when you think about the challenge of that, you began to realize what a difficult task it was, and yet uh, what a sense of commitment she must have had in order to do it. I'm also interested in this character that you brought up, Anthony Allen, as well as the dynamic between Allen and Stockton, and how they served and functioned to bridge the gap between the white 
missionary population and the local Hawaiians. I was simply fascinated by the fact that a lot of the messages of Christianity, um, a lot of the survival of the um, message, so to speak, that was put forth by the white missionaries was helped by the labor of two black people. Well, Anthony Allen is a remarkable character in his own life. He came to Hawaii in the 18-teens. He gets some land given to him. He sets up uh, a whole compound, a farm, a hospital, uh, I think a bowling alley, a restaurant. He becomes really quite a successful entrepreneur. And here is this man born into slavery who uh, had run away, escaped from slavery, again, gone around the world on a ship and found his place to live in Hawaii. And by the time the missionaries come, Anthony Allen is well established. He's a significant figure in Honolulu. He's a resource. I think he's also maybe a bit of a question mark. He's very generous with the missionaries, but he also is supplying the merchants and the mariners with some of the the needs that they have, food and, and especially drink. And yet Betsy Stockton goes off to see him soon after she arrives in Honolulu. She goes up to his house and meets him, and she doesn't say a lot about their relationship, but I get the sense that it was a very friendly one. You can imagine these two uh, African-American people encountering each other in Hawaii at the time. Alan is a very successful entrepreneur. Betsy Stockton is very young and I think still fairly insecure young woman. And yet they have this friendship and she has to move eventually to Maui. There's no sense, no indication really that they carry on a communication or relationship. But I do think that that moment of meeting when she goes to Alan's compound and sees him is one of those striking moments. I wish in some ways if, our, if this were a novel rather than a work of history, I might embellish on that, maybe even add a little bit to it. I think that they are, in the history of Hawaii in the 1820s, they both define, I think, very significant contributions to what was a very fluid cultural situation. Many conversations about narrative and authorship focus on how a story is shaped by the storyteller. In this case, that would be you. What, if any, were the challenges to reveal this story about Stockton? He did not leave a large trove of personal papers. Again, her journal that she kept on board the whale ship Thames coming over to Hawaii, she kept it for a little bit after that, was a very revealing source to me and one that I read over and over and very carefully trying to get a sense of not just what was going on on board the whale ship, but really what she was like. Uh, and I did get a sense of her, her insecurities, her spiritual ups and downs, her sense of mission, her sense of purpose, and, and even her sense of humor, which I think is very important. But as I worked on Betsy Stockton, I had to be careful. Uh, I did not want to put words in her mouth, uh, invent ideas that perhaps she didn't have. One of my friends very wisely told me, don't become a ventriloquist, and I didn't. There are times I had to imagine what Betsy Stockton must have seen, what she must have felt, and occasionally, yes, what she must have thought. I tried to locate her in a physical and historical and social context, trying to get a sense of here is this young woman of color, and even later on in her life as an older woman of color. Living in a society where the racial context is all-encompassing and how she navigates that, how she works through that, and how she maintains her own sense of spirituality, but also her own sense of day-to-day -day doggedness. Again, this sense of working at the grassroots to help people's lives, to build institutions, whether religious or educational institutions. And I think in that sense, I... I lived with Betsy Stockton in my head for several years. <laughs> in fact, you know, once you're writing about somebody, it's hard to think of, uh, of anything else. I was really struck by the moments where you described her sorrow, her feelings of isolation. You really humanize this character, you know, this lone leader, in fact, and how she navigated. Mm. You know, Betsy Stockton never married. Never had a husband, never had children. And there are many ways to speculate about that, if not to explain it. It might have been a question of her 
commitment to her calling. It might have been just an impatience with the idea of getting married and being subject to a husband's discipline. It might have been a question of her sexuality. We just don't know. There's no evidence either way. It might have been, frankly, a combination of all three. But I think that over time, Betsy Stockton's family became the community. That is, all the people in Princeton for whom she worked, for whom she built these institutions, they saw her as this kind of matriarchal figure. And I think that even in her days in Hawaii, she was a, a standout, somebody who looked different, somebody who was not married, somebody who was not part of anybody else's immediate family. She had to be a striking character. We all know that any time any institution survives, it's because the women make it happen. They're the ones who do the day-to-day difficult, but nonetheless very, very significant work. I would say this is the kind of person who really makes things happen. Not the great orator, not the great political speaker, not the leader of dramatic protest, but somebody who stays around year after year and does the work that matters and keeps a community together. This was a great book. I I was a teacher for years, and um, I still do teach, and I'm going to recommend this to the people I know who teach in secondary and in the college within African-American studies and otherwise. I think it's so well-researched and well-done. I really want to congratulate you. Well, thank you, and I want to congratulate you for being a teacher, too. The reason one of the, the, the... goals, I hope, of of this book is to bring her back into view, to bring her into history in Hawaii. Her work in Hawaii connected with her work back in the U.S. at the time. Hawaii was different. Yes, of course it was. But the sense of personal, but also, I would say, political becoming is something that connects the uh, Hawaii of the 1820s to the United States of the 1820s and 30s and 40s and maybe connects the two even today. That was author Gregory Nobles talking with HBR Stephanie Hahn about writing the book, The Education of Betsy Stockton, An Odyssey of Slavery and Freedom. A longer version of the interview with additional details on Stockton will be posted on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. All aboard the glory train Step forward, don't remain. Don't stand well, that's it for today. Tomorrow, Bill Dorman will be filling in on the lineup soccer with Hawaii's Mana Shim, chair of the U.S. Soccer Safety Task Force. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? You can find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. 